Gospel of Luke, um, as I will be uh, considering Luke chapter 22. I just, and I love the music this morning. I just love being able to hear your voices, everybody singing, and uh, it was such a great blessing. I, I'm sorry, I just think that's better than, <clears throat> I don't know. I just like to be able to be able to hear everybody singing and declaring God's truth. So we are grateful for all who participated in that. Well, in 2017, the word of the year was fake news. We've all probably been hearing about fake news, and I'm not going to go into great detail, but fake news is basically news that is created to deliberately misinform or deceive. And like I said, in 2017, it was the word of the year. In fact, you probably can't listen to much news anymore without hearing that term fake news. Many social media outlets have put up barriers and put up guardrails so that fake news is not propagated on their particular sites. And because the idea, of course, is to misinform or to deceive. And while we are in a great uproar today in regards to fake news, I think perhaps what's even more concerning is the idea of fake faith, which our carnal nature and our cosmic enemy, the devil, would seek to use to misinform or deceive us. I can't think of anything more frightening than actually believing that you are in Christ, but not being in Christ. Believing that you are a follower um, and in favor, in God's favor, or reconciled to God, or justified before God, or declared not guilty before God, when in fact you are actually guilty, when in fact you are actually not born again when actually you are, um, you remain a child of wrath. I can't think of anything more frightening than to believe that you are in the faith when in actuality you are not. And so we are going to see that um, today. I do need to just a quick qualifier here. My goal today is not to create doubt or fear in your minds. I do not want people who are in Christ walking out of here today wondering, am I in Christ? I do want us to consider our faith and to check our hearts as to where we are. On the other hand, here's the other thing. I don't want somebody walking out of here who has not been born again believing they really are. So my qualification is not to, uh, to create doubt in you. But this passage of text calls us to confront some very challenging issues. And so we will confront them. So let me give you a, so just some over, an, an overview of where um, our text is. Um, then I'll touch base on a few other things. So it's just an overview. Luke is now turning his attention to the cross. Jesus is now in Jerusalem. He's been teaching in Jerusalem. We are now going to be focused on the cross. And one of the things we're going to see today is that for the first time, an insider, 
an insider joins the ranks of those seeking to kill Jesus. Now, those seeking to kill Jesus, we've been seeing throughout the Gospel of Luke. They've been um, various people who are outside of the group of disciples. Today, we see an insider break ranks and join with those who seek to kill Jesus. He becomes a murderer. But not only that, but Luke now includes the mention of cosmic forces. Satan who also is aligned in this murderous plan. That doesn't surprise us, but Luke doesn't talk a whole lot about Satan. So the fact that he is included in this, I believe, shows the, uh, the importance of that influence. So that's just kind of an overview. Here's why I believe that this passage of text is important for us and why we, there are probably many reasons why we need to listen to it. But first of all, Judas is going to provide for us the, uh, an important portrait of a false believer. And so we need to recognize that not all who follow Jesus are born again. Or at least not all who claim to follow Jesus are born again. The other thing I want us to note is to understand that God is faithful to work out His plan. In other words, the plan of God is the eternal plan of God and it is not thwarted by those who have fake faith. It is not thwarted by those who are enemies of Christ. In fact, we will see. And it is not even thwarted by by the devil himself. What we want to see in this uh, passage of text and including what we'll talk about next week, that um, God has not lost control of the situation. We need to keep that in mind. Uh, One of the things we want to keep in mind, Well, I'm getting ahead of myself, so I'll just... I'm getting ready to point three, but we need to get to point one and point two. So just a a quick overview of the structure. There's a very simple um, uh, passage of text. We're going to see that the leaders, the religious leaders of the day, desire to murder Jesus, but they are restrained from doing so because they fear the people. Judas, however comes along and provides the necessary means so that they can carry out their murderous plot. So would you follow along with me as we read Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. This is the Word of God. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was a number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. And this ends the reading of God's inerrant word. So just a quick setting, the, the, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is drawing, it says here that the Feast of Unleavened Bread is drawing near, which is called the Passover. You need to recognize that the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover are two different holidays, but they are often conflated. Um, Josephus even uh, uses the two terms interchangeably, but when you go back into uh, um, in, to the law, you'll see that God um, instituted um, a seven-day feast of unleavened bread, and then following that was a one-day holiday of 
of Passover. So it was actually two separate holidays, but they, um, they ran concurrently with one another. And so here's what we see. The Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is, also, which is called the Passover. Those two terms, while has caused a number of people to say, oh, look, there's a problem with the Bible. We do see um, um, in extra biblical writings, those two holidays were often, re, uh, um, their terms were used interchangeably. So there is no problem there. The purpose of the Passover, we need to recall what's going on here because the purpose of the Passover was a day where they celebrated their deliverance from bondage. That the people of God, Israel, had been um, enslaved by the people of Egypt and the enemy, Egypt, was a was a far greater foe than they were able to deliver themselves from. They could not overcome Egypt on their own. They did not have the the might. They did not have the numbers. They did not have the weaponry. They did not have the organization. They did not have the means to cast off their oppressor by themselves. And so, without outside help, They were consigned to bondage. They were consigned to slavery. And they are delivered only because God Almighty shows up and overthrows their enslavers. God Almighty shows up and delivers by His mighty power. So we have people who are under the oppression of of a taskmaster whom they cannot by their own ability overthrow, but God in His mercy sees fit to come in and to destroy that which the people were unable to destroy for themselves. And this then is the background behind this idea of Passover. And so the chief priests during this time are seeking to put Jesus to death. They have a dilemma. We want to kill this man. We hate him, but he's popular with the crowds. And over during the, the Feast of Passover, there are millions of people in Jerusalem. This place is packed. And we don't want to arrest him. I mean, he's teaching every day in the temple, but we can't go in and arrest him because it says they fear the people. The people will cause a riot. And then Rome will come in and squash everything. And then we will we'll lose our position. We will lose our power. We will lose our, our land. We will lose all of the privileges that we have. And so on the one hand, we want to kill the man. On the other hand, we really just don't have the opportunity to do it. So they kept saying, don't do this during the Passover. Don't do this during the Passover. Don't do this during the Passover. Because there were just too many people. And guess when it gets done? During the Passover. Why? Because God is ultimately in control of when this thing happens. And so the leaders hate Jesus. Jesus, however, is popular with the crowds. To uh, arrest him publicly um, would result in a backlash against them. And certainly Rome would come in and uh, squash any uprising. So they would, their desire was most likely to arrest him um, after the feast at some point. Now, I love this phrase here. It says, as, um, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. Man, this, this idea here is that they're just keeping watch. There's a diligent search, and they're just looking and waiting for any opportunity to pounce. It also describes that the reason that they didn't do it is that they feared the people. 
And we can't help but note that they fear the people, but they don't fear God. In other words, they're saying, how do we murder an innocent man and yet still maintain a good reputation in front of people? How do we become murderers who are hated, right? People don't like murderers. So how can we murder an innocent man and yet, at the same time, maintain good, favorable reputation amongst the people? Because we don't mind murdering. We just don't want to look bad. They fear the people. When you no longer, I mean, we, we giggle, we, we laugh, but when you no longer fear God, this is the extent of one's rationality. There is no rationale. They love the applause of others. They love the prestige of position. And they were willing to exchange the wrath of God for the praise of people. This is where the unregenerate person exists. I would rather face God's wrath than face your disapproval. What an upside-down, backward place to be. And remember, these are not, quote, heathens. These are people who are the religious leaders of the nation. But we do not fear God, we fear people. See, false religion prioritizes the praise of man. False religion will always prioritize the praise of of man. Bible tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. No wonder these guys are fools. They're acting like fools because they've lost the very first basic principle. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. They don't fear God and so they act like fools. False religion will always appear righteous in the eyes of men. And I think that's why false religions always are works-based. We've often stated there are really only two religions in the world. There is Christianity and there's everything else. Christianity has two distinctives. One, that Jesus is God. And two, that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Everything else will deny one or both of those two distinctives. And it makes sense because works-based religions make us look good, but they don't make us good. And the other thing is a works-based religion, a works-based idea, really works are pretty easy to do. If you say, you know what, show up at the meeting three times a week and do this and do that and don't eat this, but do eat that and you know, dress this way or don't dress that way. These types of things, those are really pretty easy to do. See, doing good works is actually fairly attainable. Doesn't mean you do them with the right heart. Doesn't mean you do them with a righteous attitude. See, doing good is easy. Being made good is supernatural. That's the difference. And they are, false religion is based on looking, doing good, looking good, but not being good. And so how do we be good? 
We can only be good because we are by nature children of wrath. We are lost and enslaved by Adam's sin. We will always choose the wrong thing when we have opportunity or the selfish thing. And the only way to be changed is a supernatural act of God. That's why Christianity is different from anything else. It does not make you look good necessarily, but it does make you good, or at least makes you right with God. When God looks upon you, you are right. You are not guilty. You don't just look innocent. You are innocent. Because somebody else, Christ, has paid the penalty, borne your guilt, and given you his righteousness. And so, this is one of the first things we learn about fake faith. Fake faith is based on my efforts to look good. And it's really not that hard. True faith is one who has, is, is a faith where God supernaturally regenerates, the, gives you a new heart. I can't give you a new heart. I can give you rules, but I can't give you a new heart. God can give you a new heart. I do find it really interesting here, this rather uncomfortable position that believers are in. They have all this power and all this authority, but they are unable to do what they want to do. In other words, they're not really in control. Well, there's the dilemma. We want to kill a man, but we want to look good doing it. How do we make sure that the stain of murder doesn't stick to us? Enter Judas. It says, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. Well, now we begin to see that this is a cosmic battle. Satan entered Judas, and this is a statement that has confounded or brought up, you know, lots and lots of discussion. What does that mean that Satan entered Judas? And I'm sure that if we were to be in a more informal Bible study type time, we could probably come up with a lot of different answers and a lot of different ideas, and they would be worthy of discussion. But I do want to just note, instead of trying to define exactly what it means, Satan entered Judas, what I would like to look at is, what is the result of Satan entering Judas? I think that will give us a clue to what is meant here, because whatever restraint that had kept Judas from acting on his own lust and his own passions has now been removed. Jesus calls him, he is the son of perdition. He has always been, he, he's always been this. Now Judas does what any unrestrained individual does, and that is he seeks to destroy the witness of Christ. So what does it mean that Satan entered Judas? I guess we can come up with a whole lot of different ideas about what that entails, but here's what happens. What ends up happening is what always happens when Satan is unrestrained, and that is the testimony and the witness of Christ is sought for destruction. I think one of our best examples, and I know I'm opening up a can of worms here, but um, 
is in Revelation 20. And Revelation 20 is certainly a, a highly discussed passage of text where it says this. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. I'm going to stop there. I'm not going to talk about what the thousand years is or what it means that Satan was bound or any of that. I just want you to know, Satan is bound. All right? In that text. What I want you to note now, not just that he is bound, what does he do when he is unbound? I think that's crucial. What does he do when the chains are removed? And we move down uh, a little bit. It says, and then when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. Now, note this now, he's unbound. And will come out to deceive the nations that are on the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. They're numbered like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and of the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Here's the point. When Satan is unbound, what does he do? He attacks the witness of Christ on the earth. When he is... So, whatever binding is, and whenever it happens, and whether the thousand years, whatever the thousand years is, I think we can all see very plainly, when he is unbound, he attacks the witness of Christ. That's what Satan does. So, whatever this idea of Satan entering into Judas, here's what we see. When he enters into Judas, Judas now goes and seeks to destroy Christ. Because that's what an unrestrained individual will do. See, Judas, I want you to understand, Judas is not acting as some unwilling automaton, but is an unconverted man who is loosed and restrained. In other words, when Satan enters Judas, you do not see him um, display some of the rather outward flamboyant um, manifestations that we often associate with satanic um, possession, and that the Bible even talks about. We do not see, you know, his head turning all the way around, and he doesn't turn green and spit out pea soup. I know that's a really old reference, you know, but all you young people don't. But he doesn't do that. He still looks like one of the twelve. He didn't grow horns and a tail. He still appeared to be one of the twelve. What does he do? He does something much worse conspires to murder the Son of God. He is unrestrained. Whatever restraint was holding him back has now been removed by this uh, uh, entrance of Satan and now he is, like I said, he is not some, some automaton who has no free will or choice in this. He does what unrestrained, un, uh, unregenerated people do. Kill Christ. does not turn into a raving madman. He appears no different, but his lusts are now acted upon. He looks like a disciple, but he's fake. And so, Satan enters into Judas, who is called Iscariot. I like this. Who was a number of the twelve, now an insider. An insider. is seeking for the destruction of Christ. I want you to understand that this is an age-old battle. This idea of Satan entering into Judas and Judas going to 
um, and seeking to destroy Christ is nothing new. And you all know where we find this first reference, don't you? In Genesis 3.15, where God says to Satan, that serpent of old, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So from the very beginning, we see the seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman is going to bring forth Messiah. The seed of the serpent will always seek to destroy. The seed of the serpent has always desired to kill the seed of the woman. This is, I'm just going to give you a, just a quick flyover biblical theology of this fact. And, I, and I've stated this before, but it's worth stating again. Cain kills Abel. Seed of the serpent seeks to destroy the seed of the woman. Cain kills Abel. Seth is raised up. What happens to Seth? Seth's family line is threatened to be compromised. And we see this in, in uh, Genesis chapter 6 with this uh, rather strange, uh, it's a very strange passage of text, but it's Seth's family line being compromised, seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the chosen one. He is the, he is the one through whom Messiah will come. Esau is not and there is enmity between these two. A great example then is Amalek. Remember Amalek? The children of Israel have come out of Egypt, and coming up behind them is this individual, or this, um, perhaps it's just a title, it's probably a title. The Bible says, then came Amalek, and he sought to destroy Israel. Guess what line Amalek comes from? Esau, and he's trying to kill Jacob. This is nothing new. And then you remember in the book of Esther, Haman, right? Do you know what? Do you ever wonder? I wonder where Haman came from. He's an Amalekite. All right? Comes from the line of Amalek. And who's he trying to kill? Jacob. He's trying to kill the seed of the woman. This just goes on and on. Oh, Herod. Remember, he slaughtered the children. What's he trying to do? Kill the Christ. Guess where Herod comes from? Esau. All right. This is an age-old battle. This has been going on. When Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness, the idea is to destroy the Christ. So from the very beginning of time, from the very beginning of recorded history up until the, the coming of Christ, we see this attempt to destroy the seed of the woman. And even in Luke 4, at the beginning, of the, we, say it, we see the, the attempt at destroying Christ in the wilderness by Satan himself. And then in Luke 4, after Jesus gives his... Um, his sermon in Nazareth, they seek to kill him. And from then on, there is always this attempt to seek to kill Christ. But they never get him. In fact, sometimes it says he just passes through their midst. They can't get him. Now, now, Judas has come. And he is going to betray the Christ. This is a satanic plan. People often ask, how could Judas do such a thing? 
And you have to ask, that's a fair question. I mean, Judas witnessed the miracles. Judas probably performed miracles. He was one of the groups that is sent out. And he comes back saying, you know what? We cast out demons in your name. We did miracles in your name. Judas was one of the twelve, given authority to do those things. There is no reason to say that Judas was excluded from any of that. And we ask, he, he saw the miracles. He saw the dead raised. He saw demons cast out, and he actually cast out demons and, and healed the sick. He saw Jesus' authority over demonic forces. How, you ask, how could a man do something, see all of that, witness all of that, act in such a way, be part of such a, something like that? How could he then go and do something like that? And the answer is really very simple. He's an unconverted man. He's an unregenerate man. He is the son of perdition. He is the one, he is an example of one who Jesus says, I never knew you. We read that passage today, perhaps the most frightening passage in all of Scripture in Matthew chapter 7. Lord, Lord, we did all of these things in your name. We cast out devils and we performed miracles in your name. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Not I knew you and then I forgot about you. Or you were part of me, but then you weren't. You were never part of me. Judas was never a regenerate man. He was from the beginning the son of perdition. Jesus says this, I lost no one. I lost no one. I kept everyone you gave me. I didn't lose the son of perdition. He was always the son of perdition. I didn't lose him. He wasn't mine and I lost him. He was never mine. I think we should also note that external experiences do not regenerate. External experiences do not regenerate a person. If by God's sovereign mercy, He heals a person supernaturally through an unregenerate man, it does not make that person born again. Likewise, here's the thing. Just because somebody experiences the supernatural does not mean that they will be born again. We, we, we get a lot, of, a lot of times we think, oh man, if, if my friend, my loved one, if my family member would, you know, they're sick, if God would heal them, then they would believe. That's just not true. Now, it may be a great testimony. I still think we want to pray for supernatural recovery and healing and all of those things. We want to pray for supernatural works of God because God does big stuff. God still steps down and heals people. God delivers people. God does all of these things. Let us just not have the false assumption that if that happens, my, per my, my friend, my loved one, my family member will then see God and fall down and worship. That's just not true. Judas saw all of those things. He experienced those things. He did those things. And in fact, Jesus did miracle after miracle after miracle and the people still would not believe. They still turned away from him. They still said, crucify him. External experiences do not generate regenerate a person. They do not cause us to be born again. Regeneration comes from a proclamation of the gospel. It is the gospel that saves. 
We pray for miracles. Every time we pray for somebody to be saved, we're praying for a miracle. When we go to the hospital and we pray, when you give us those cards and the thing and we're praying, you're asking us to pray for a miracle. You're praying that your, your, your son or your daughter would be free from the bondage of addiction. We're praying for a miracle. But it is the gospel that saves. And the gospel is this. That God has made all things. There is nothing. You can look wherever you want to look. Wherever you look, God has made it. The things you can't see, God still made them. The things that have yet to be discovered, we just don't know about them yet, God made them. God made you. You are created in His image. You have been made as the pinnacle of His creation and you are accountable to the God who made you. But we have sinned. Sin is just, I don't know, I like to use the term we've rebelled. We've rebelled against this God. We've said, no, I will not do what you said. And the Bible is very clear that the wage of the sin is death. You will die. And I believe the idea there is eternal death because it's set in contrast with the wage of the sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Death and life are set in contrast to one another. It's eternal death or eternal life. It's the wage of the sin is death. You will die in your sins. Here's what's worse. You can't do anything about it. There's nothing you can do to change that. You cannot fix it yourself. So is it hopeless? No. The gospel means good news. If we stopped there, it wouldn't be good news. It would just be bad news. The good news is this. You can't fix it, but Jesus can. Jesus put on flesh, dwelt among us, and lived the life that you didn't. He lived perfectly sinless and without blame. God's wrath was still God's wrath. Don't think for a moment that God winks at sin. If you were born again, God did not just wink at your sin. Oh no. Jesus bore your sin. The wrath of God was poured out completely and fully in its entirety upon Jesus Christ for you. This is why we sang that song today. The wrath of God was satisfied. And on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God. So wrath was still poured. It just wasn't poured out on you. That's the good news. The good news is that but the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The wrath of God was poured out upon Him. So now the wrath that is due you was poured out on Christ and the righteousness of Christ can be credited to your account. It, and really then, the idea is we just need to make, a, we just need to make the decision. Am I going to follow? Am I going to believe that? Am I going to believe that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to cover all of my sins so that I can have peace with God? Will you believe that? External experiences do not regenerate. The gospel does. I've shared with you probably imperfectly the gospel. And I would hope that if you are not regenerate, if you've never been born again, that that would speak to you and maybe after church we can talk. You will notice that Satan enters Judas um, at this particular point in time. 
In other words, Satan is not sovereign. He is working, he is only doing what he is permitted by God. It has been famously stated that the devil is God's devil. So again, why does Judas do this? Well, I think the the ultimate reason is that he's unregenerate, but the temporal reason is that um, he's an idolater, like all of us. He's a man who is consumed by wealth, by greed, and we see this, that he was offered money. In fact, one one of the gospel accounts said, um, Judas came and says, what will you give me? What will you give me to betray the Son of God? That's a frightening statement. Pay me enough. I'll give you what you want. Yeah, there's a desire for this world and a desire for the comforts above Christ. He will sell out Christ to obtain his idol. Wow. This is what idolatry does. This is what unregenerate people do. This is what, we, this is what happens. I would rather have that than Christ. I will deny Christ. I will crucify Christ if I can have my position, my power, my greed, my lust, whatever it is, happens to be. That is of a greater value than the Son of God. And this is where Judas is. He, he has a desire for the thing, something in this world that is so compelling that he says, I will murder the Son of God to get what I want. See, here's the thing. False faith, fake faith has another Lord. And we can probably get into all sorts of details of everything, all the elements of fake faith, but ultimately fake faith has another Lord. It could be a lot of different things. Vacation, travel, family, all sorts of things come before Christ. And ultimately it says this, that the people were that the that the leaders were glad, and they were glad and agreed to give him the money. What a frightening thought! They were glad. The religious leaders who upheld or were supposed to uphold um, the truth of God were glad for the opp- opportunity to murder the object of their hate, and they did so for a mere thirty pieces of silver. And we learned that that's the price of a slave. I believe there's also evidence that that's the price of a prostitute. That's all he's worth. That's what he's worth. They did not want to arrest Jesus during the festival, but they will. Why? Because they are not the ones in control of this operation. Jesus is going to go to the cross exactly at the right determined time. He will go to the cross because God is sovereign. Jesus will lay down his life. No one will take his life from him. He will lay it down willingly, and he will take it up again. And so, I'll just conclude with this. Folks, we should know fake faith has always been present. Fake faith has always been present. There are many out there who will seek to feed your lusts and to do so for their gain. 
but when we do so, it leads to destruction. So what do we do? I guess I could give you a whole lot of steps and a whole lot of ideas, but I, I think ultimately what we do need to do is we just need to remember the gospel. I know that's old, and maybe we want something new, and we want something more exciting, and we want something more, I don't know, contemporary or what have you. Give us something new, but we're not a very contemporary church. We're just going to give you the old gospel. Why? Because it's still the gospel that saves. And that is that you will trust Jesus alone for your salvation. Not that you attend this church. Judas went around with the twelve. Not that you've even done miracles. None of those things make you a Christian. But Jesus is Lord. Being born again from above, filled with the Holy Spirit, made new, a new heart that loves God and seeks to put to death the flesh. The other one is to love the flesh and seeks to put to death the Christ. So let's stand and let's pray.